Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? He is risen. Yeah, woo. Um, can we do this? Can we thank our worship team as they file on out for leading us so well in worship? So thankful for them. Um, if you don't have a seat yet, all of our kids are filing out. So if there's some open seats, if some of you can maybe scoot in a little bit more, would love to get everyone seated. Thank you for being patient with us. And do me a favor, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, can you open them up to 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have it on an app on your phone, um, just raise your hand and we have people coming down the aisles right now who'd love to give you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, consider that our gift for you to keep. And if you are visiting with us, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. And I'm just so glad and thankful that you hung out this holiday weekend with us. We're so honored to have you, excited to be worshiping with you. And uh, you guys know what day it is. It is Easter. And Easter is the day in the church calendar. It is the most important weekend of the year for us. And it is the day when the church celebrates the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so here's what you need to know about me. I'm a big fan of honesty and clarity and getting right to the point. So, so I'm going to help us out by letting you know exactly where we're going this morning. All right, for some of us here this morning, I think for most of us in this room, um, I think today is going to be a day that's encouraging. And we're going to be reminded of, of a truth that we hold dear. All right, and there's others of you this morning that it's about to get really uncomfortable. And, and it's going to get uncomfortable for a reason. Because I'm going to confront you with the decision that you have to make. Nobody gets to leave here this morning without being confronted with a decision. And the decision is really, really simple. It's this. Did Jesus Christ actually raise from the dead? Did Jesus Christ historically die on Good Friday? Was he buried for three days? And then did he rise from the grave? defeating sin and death. Did this really happen? Or is it a lie and a myth? Listen, I know that for um, a lot of us, there's different reasons why we're here this morning, right? A lot of us are here because we love Jesus and we're excited to celebrate him and what he's done in our lives. Um, some of us are here because um, mama made you come, right? And um, we're already in enough trouble and don't want an upset mama on Easter weekend. So we're here because family is here and this is what we do. Some of us are here because tradition. And every Easter we dress up in our nice Sunday clothes and we come to church and this is what we do. And there's some of you that are here because you're hurting or trying to figure things out. And you're like, man, the way I've been running hasn't exactly been going great. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a different way. But no matter why you're here this morning, listen, nobody gets to leave here without being confronted with the decision, is Jesus actually alive or did he never raise from the dead at all? The big idea is simple, it's this, it's that if Jesus actually rose from the dead, it is the single most important event in world history. If Jesus is actually alive, there is nothing else in the history of the universe that would even remotely compare to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance 
what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see what Paul says in verse 3? He says, I delivered this to you as of first importance. That everything else I've written in the previous 15 chapters, they don't matter at all. If Jesus did not die for our sins and that he rose from the dead. It is the most important aspect of Christianity. The whole thing unravels if Jesus isn't actually alive. It is the cornerstone of our faith. It is central to Christianity. And here's why. Because if Jesus is not alive, then Christianity is worthless. If Jesus isn't alive, Christianity is worthless. If Jesus did not raise from the dead... Christianity is a car without wheels, it is a train without a track, it is a boat that doesn't float, or any other lame automotive analogy I can come up with at the top of my head right now, right? It's a, um, yeah, it's a plane without wings, there's one, got another one, right? It is worthless. Paul says this himself, look at verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. It says if Jesus is not alive, then we have no hope. Those before us who believed in Jesus who died, they are gone. And listen, we rightfully deserve the mocking and scorn of our culture for believing in a false religion. If Jesus is not alive, the whole thing rests on the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And here's why. Because Christianity isn't about morality. The purpose of Christianity isn't about morality. Now, does following the Bible and following Jesus lead to a moral life? Absolutely. But there's this thought in our culture where it's like, man, I don't really know about the Jesus being God thing, and I'm not sure I trust the Bible, but the church is really good because it gives my kids a good moral foundation to build their lives on. Like, like listen, if Jesus isn't alive, then we're all nice, happy, moral uh, people who get along really well, but we are still absolutely as hopeless as the rest of the world. Morality in itself gains us absolutely nothing. The other reason why is because Christianity is not about therapy. Christianity is not about therapy, right? It's not like, man, my life is falling apart and my marriage is a wreck and I've got these addictions and, you know, Dr. Phil's not working, so let's try Dr. Jesus, right? That he's going to make all my problems go away and make my life better. Now listen, does Jesus absolutely have the power to transform lives? Amen. He does. Okay, but the purpose of Christianity is not so that our life would be easy and all of our problems would go away and, and that um, we would just be better humans. It's not about that. Christianity centers on the reality that God came to earth, that his name was Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion and that he rose again from the dead in reality, defeating sin and death. And that relationship with God is found only through faith in his alive son, Jesus Christ. 
that we can know our creator because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. The whole thing rests on the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give three proofs why we can know that he actually rose from the dead. He's going to make three arguments or three proofs of the resurrection that, that I'm going to give to you now as arguments. That, listen, if you're here and you're like, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus rising from the dead, it seems impossible. I'm going to lay out some proofs that you're going to have to have answers to. All right, so look at 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 3 again. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see how two times there Paul says in accordance with the scriptures? Right, the argument he's making here is, listen, the Bible called it. That everything that happened in the life and death of Jesus Christ was prophesied hundreds, if not more than a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. You see, the Bible, you need to understand, it's not one book written by one author. It's made up of many books written by many authors that span like over 1,500 years of time. And in the Old Testament, 1,500 years before Jesus was alive, there were prophecies or promises that people made about Jesus that he fulfilled perfectly. Well, what were some of those? There were some about his lineage what family he would come from. There were prophecies about where he would grow up. There were prophecies about the miracles that he would do. There were prophecies about how he would die. Listen, there were prophecies about Jesus that he had no control over. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It happened. Jesus wasn't even involved in that transaction. Okay, so it's NBA playoff season right now. And uh, um, just um, pretend with me for a second that the Warriors were playing the Clippers tonight. I think they played last night, but let's just pretend they were playing tonight. And I was like, hey, I I've got a prediction. I've got a prophecy. The Warriors are going to beat the Clippers. You would look at me like, yeah, way to go, Cal. They're the defending champions, right? They're, they're, they're supposed to win. They're the best team in the NBA. Well, like, that's not a hard call to make. Okay, so imagine I was like, all right, I I'm going to do one better. The, the Warriors are going to beat the Clippers, and the score is going to be 122 to 108, right? So say that that happened, and you were like, okay, you got lucky, right? Like, you knew the Warriors were going to win because they're the better team, and, and anyone can get lucky and predict the score. Like, it's pretty impressive, but um, you, you, you just got lucky. Okay, so came to, say I came to you and said, listen, the Warriors are going to beat the Clippers. The score is going to be 122 to 108. And Steph Curry's going to have 32 points, Kevin Durant's going to have 34 points, Draymond Green's going to miss a bunch of free throws and score like 8 points. And say I was able to go down like, through the entire list of every player that played in the game and got their stat line perfectly correct. And then I said, and by the way, there's going to be exactly 40,137 people at the game, and they're going to spend a combined $1.24 million on merchandise and concessions at the game. And I got all of it perfect. Right, then you're looking at me like, what are you doing being a pastor? You should be in sports betting, right? Like, you're wasting your gift. Right, but you'd have to take me like seriously at that point. Like, you've got information that nobody else has. Okay, now imagine I gave every winner, every score, every attendance number, every stat line for every game for the entire playoffs. Now we're getting close 
to the level of, of improbability and specificity, specificity about the prophecies about Jesus Christ. Here's what we know. We know that there is over 300 references to over 60 prophecies made about the Messiah. And what mathematicians have done is they, they've kind of put together a formula that said, what are the odds that one person could fulfill all of these prophecies? And the number they've come up with is that the, the probability of that happening is 1 out of 10 with 157 zeros behind it. 1 out of 10 to the 157th power. They're saying it is basically a mathematical impossibility. And what Paul is arguing is, listen, every prophecy in the Old Testament was perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ because the whole thing pointed to Jesus Christ. Only God could do it, and he did it perfectly. The first evidence or proof of the resurrection is fulfilled prophecy. The second proof of the resurrection is the historical record. Look at verse 5. He says this. He said, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. You see the argument that Paul's making here? He's like saying, listen, don't take my word for it. If you don't believe me that Jesus rose from the dead, there's a lot of people that you can talk to. You can talk to Peter, you can talk to the 12 disciples, you can talk to the 500 people that claim to see Jesus alive together at one time. Like, Jesus wasn't exactly hiding from everyone after he rose from the dead. He went and he met with people and he talked with people and he walked with people. He's alive and there's a lot of people that have seen him alive. Listen, any historian with any credibility would agree on these facts. This is what everyone agrees on. That there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be the son of God. Everyone else would also agree that he was a teacher who had a reputation for doing the miraculous. That he would heal, that he could raise, people claimed he could raise people from the dead, that he was a healer who had supernatural power. Everyone would agree that he was crucified under the Roman Empire. And everyone else would agree that his followers vehemently claimed that they saw him alive after the crucifixion, that his followers believed he rose from the dead. So if you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, there's some really hard questions that you have to answer this morning historically. Here's the first one. How did so many hundreds of people claim to see him alive and see him alive together? Did they all just like take mushrooms and have like this hallucination party and somehow all saw the same hallucination? That's one of the theories. It's insane. Hundreds of people claimed to see him alive. How do you answer that? Um, how about this? Why did so many followers of Jesus Christ go to their death claiming that Jesus was alive? Like, listen, they didn't do it for um, financial wealth. They didn't do it for power or, or, or political cachet. But people were burned at the stake. They were hung upside down. They were fed to lions for no other reason than they wouldn't stop claiming that Jesus was alive. If it was a lie, if it was a myth, why are they willingly going to their death claiming that they saw something that they didn't actually see when it benefited them nothing here on earth? Here's a question you have to answer. Why did Jesus' own brother and mother claim that he was the son of God and rise from the dead? Like, listen, if anyone in your life wants to prove that you're not perfect, the best choice is your mom, the second best choice is your brother, right? 
right? If anyone's like, no, he, he's lying, he sinned all the time, that would be your family. But they were the ones like, no, he was perfect, he was the son of God, he, he was the perfect lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And he rose from the dead. James, his own brother, was thrown off the temple, his legs were broken, and they gave him one more chance, deny that Jesus is Lord, and when he wouldn't do it, they brutally murdered him. But James said that Jesus was alive. And then here, here's another really hard question that you need to answer. Explain the explosion of Christianity in the Roman Empire in the first century. How in, in some in, insignificant area in the Roman Empire did this religion grow and explode and could not be stopped regardless of the persecution and people trying to crush it? Right? Historians will say, listen, if Constantine would have never had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity would have never made it anywhere. Right, that, that, listen, it was, it was struggling, it wasn't this big deal, but then this Roman emperor made it the official religion, and that's what gave it legs. Okay, look here. I really, really hope that Constantine sincerely loved the Lord and was a follower of Jesus. Like, I think that would be awesome if he was, because if he was, when we get to heaven, he's going to be my best friend. Like, how cool would it be to be best friends with a Roman emperor, right? People are like, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm going to be so excited to meet C.S. Lewis. It's like, you can keep Narnia, bro. I'm hanging out with Constantine, right? I'm rolling with the emperor, right? Like, that's what I, like, I want to hang out with him. He's going to be in my crew in, in heaven. But here's um, maybe another explanation of why he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Because when he took power, 51% of the Roman Empire was already Christian. And just like any shrewd politician, he saw that there was this movement happening that couldn't be stopped, that was supernatural. And he says, listen, if I want to stay in power, I need to get on board with what's already happening in my empire. How do you explain, explain the explosion of a religion that could not be stopped that's all centered around the fact that Jesus is alive? These are questions that you've got to have answers to if you're going to deny the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says this, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Okay, here's the third proof of the resurrection. It's testimonies of transformation. Right, Paul's like, listen, I don't deserve to be a follower of Christ. He's like, I had spent the, the, the most majority of my adult life persecuting the church. I was a religious Jew, I hated Jesus, I hated everything that he stood for, and I wanted his followers to be thrown in prison or to be killed. But he goes, then one day I was doing my thing, walking on a road, and Jesus showed up, and I saw him, and he revealed himself to me alive and as the Son of God. Listen, why did Paul have a 180 degree change and that Paul would go to his death, be beheaded in Rome because he said that Jesus was alive. He didn't even like the guy before he met him. Okay, let's talk about the disciples, right? You've got Mark, uh, the night of the crucifixion, right? Remember what Mark's doing? He's running away from the crowd naked, right? That's not a good moment for anyone. But he's so terrified. He's running through the streets naked, trying to get away from the crowd, trying to get away from Jesus because he's terrified. Right, you got Peter cowering at the testimony of a servant girl who's like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, absolutely not. And he starts cursing and he denies Jesus three times. Right, like listen, the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz was disappointed at the disciples' courage on Good Friday. Like they were the worst. 
And then just a few weeks later, they're standing in the middle of Pentecost in Jerusalem saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was the promised Messiah, and you killed him. How does that change happen in just a couple of weeks if Jesus isn't actually alive? If they didn't actually see him? And listen, the testimonies don't just stop there. Like, how many of you could say that when I met Jesus, my life changed? Come on, raise them up, right? So are all of us liars too? That I found forgiveness, that I met true love, that relationships were restored, that I have a real joy that can't be taken away because I met Jesus. Not because I learned a coping mechanism or, or how to count to ten when I'm angry, but Jesus changed my life. So if you're going to be like, I don't believe this, then you've got some questions you have to answer. And the questions are this, explain the fulfilled prophecy explain what happened in history, and explain the testimonies, both of the people who lived with him and the millions and millions of people who have followed him in history, their testimony of meeting Jesus changing their lives. Big idea. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, it is the single most important event in world history. So here's the question, why is it so important? If Jesus is alive, why, why is it such a big deal? And what I'm going to do now with the rest of our time is I want to give five implications of the resurrections or, or five things that if Jesus is actually alive, then this is what it means. And, and here's the first. If Jesus is actually alive, then what Jesus said about himself is true. The reason the resurrection is so important is because if Jesus is alive... That that means what Jesus said about himself is true, primarily the fact that Jesus said that he was God. Well, Jesus was here on earth. He claimed to be God. John 5, 18 says, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Right, Jesus started his ministry by going out into the wilderness, going to hang out with his cousin, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist saw him, they said, hey, look, there he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus said, yes, that's me. He claimed to be God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes through the Father except through me. That not only is he God, but he is the only avenue into relationship with the Father, that forgiveness and restored relationship is only found through Jesus Christ. Okay, listen, Jesus is not unique in claiming to be God. Throughout history, there's been a ton of dudes who've claimed to be God. Here's the problem with them. They're all dead, right? Well, like a, a bunch of other people have claimed to have supernatural power, to, to, to be God, to, to, to be um, a divine being, but the problem is, is they're all dead. Like, listen, death has a 100% record for everyone in human history except Jesus. Even the people that Jesus rose from the dead, they all died again. Like, that would be weird, dying for the second time, right? That's another talk for another day. But listen, like Lazarus died, rose again, died again. Jesus rose from the dead and is still alive today. Second implication is not only that what Jesus says about himself is true, but then that also means what the Bible says about us is true. Right? Listen, if Jesus is truly God, then the reason he came to earth was a legitimate reason. And Jesus says, I, I have come 
um, that you know, no man comes to the Father but through me in John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So if Jesus came to the world to save the world, here's what that means. That means that you and I need saving. It means that what the Bible says about us is true, that we have sinned against God. Look here, that you have sinned against God the holy creator God of the universe, that you have shook your fist in him in rebellion and you are guilty of treason. That when you choose to worship yourself, when you choose to live for your own glory, that is treason against God and our rightful punishment for that is death and damnation. But God in love made a way when there was no way for us. You see, if Jesus is actually alive, that means that you and I need saving. And that Jesus is our only hope. Okay, but here's the amazing news. The third implication is that if Jesus is actually alive, then what happened on the cross is final. What happened on the cross is final. If Jesus is alive, it means that sin and death are forever defeated. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, if Jesus had never risen from the dead... Wouldn't there always still be these like lingering questions or these lingering doubts in our heart? Like, was he really the son of God? Did God really accept that sacrifice? Are we really forgiven? Are we really saved? Listen, we wouldn't be sure. We could hope, but we wouldn't know. But we can be sure because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is Jesus' victory lap over sin and death, saying, listen, that when I said it is finished, it is actually finished, and you are saved, and you are free, and you are no longer under sin's penalty because I have defeated the enemy. He's alive, so we can know what happened on the cross is final. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says this. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, look here. Because Jesus is God and he rose from the dead, that means that there's not a single person in this room who can make the argument Man, if God really knew what was going on in my life, if God really knew my thoughts, if God really knew that the stuff that I've been involved in or the stuff that I'm involved in right now, he could never love me and never forgive me. Listen, he's God. He already knew. And the cross is, is, is him saying, listen, I love you anyway. I'm going to take it all on myself. And the resurrection is saying, listen, there is no sin that I can't cover. It is defeated once and for all. Listen, we as mere humans do not have the power to trump Christ's work on the cross. We are forgiven once and for all. There is no one who is too far away from the love of God.
And the resurrection is the victory lap over sin and Satan and death. Death is defeated. Here's the fourth. Fourth implication is that what Jesus says about the future is reality. What Jesus says about the future is reality. Look what Paul writes in verse 42. He says this, so it is with the resurrection, so is it with the resurrection from the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, sown is, what is sown is in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. I think one of the things that we really try to distract ourselves from and don't like to think about is the reality of how frail you and I actually are. Like, you know how easy it is for us to die? Like, we are impossibly frail. All of us are a single car ride away from being gone. All of us are one cell in our body going rogue from having a life-threatening, life-taking away illness that will ravage our bodies. All of us are one person sneezing away from catching a virus or, or a bacteria that will end us. And like some of you are like, all right, get the hand sanitizer out, right? You know, like. <laughs> and listen, doesn't matter how much you work out, doesn't matter how many wheatgrass smoothies you drink, doesn't matter how many oils you diffuse in your home, essential or not, right? Death is coming for all of us. We are impossibly frail. Okay, but here's what Paul says. That's not what it's going to be like forever. That when Jesus comes again, that the limitations and weaknesses and frailties of our body, it's not going to be like that anymore. What is sown is imperishable, but what's going to be raised is imperishable. And like we can't even imagine what that is because this is all we know. But here's what I do know. It's going to be way better than what we have here. And even better than, than the strength and, and the power that we're going to experience at the resurrection. What's even better than that is we're going to be with Jesus. Revelation 21, 3 through 5 says this. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There's going to come a moment where we don't need to distract ourselves with useless nonsense. Because the things we fear won't be a reality anymore. There won't be pain there won't be tears. There won't be mourning. These things will have passed away. Listen, this is reality. Just as real as Christ rose from the dead, it is a real thing that we are going to experience. This is coming for us if you're in Christ. Okay, the fifth implication, and this is the big one, is that if Jesus is actually alive, then he is Lord of everything. Then he is Lord of everything. Right, I was honest with you going front, like, listen, this is the decision point. You're here and you're confronted. What do you do about the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Listen, 
He's either alive or he's not. There, there, there's no in-between. Either he's a liar and he's a lunatic or he's Lord. Because if he's alive and he rose from the dead, that means he is God and he demands the worship of the entire world. And listen, some of you might be here and you're like, you know what? I reject that Jesus is alive. And again, hear me. I think you're wrong. And I think you have some questions that you can't answer. That there are real historical proofs. Listen, our faith does not rest in just blind guessing. Our faith rests in the historical record. That there's some things you can't answer. And then there's some of us that are like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is alive and he's Lord. But look here. There's this third place that we often try to live in, which is this. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's alive. But I don't want him to be Lord over every area of my life. Okay, and listen to me. That's insane. To, to say that Jesus is alive, that he defeated sin and death, and that he is God. But man, there's certain parts of my life, Jesus, that you don't get to be Lord over. That you don't get to speak into. That I'm not going to submit to you. It's an insane position. And if you're here and if you believe that Jesus is alive, but you're not allowing him to be Lord, your life is always going to be filled with dissonance and chaos because you're a walking contradiction. There's some of us that need to be confronted with the decision, is Jesus alive or not? And then there's some of us that know that Jesus is alive, and you're confronted with the decision, am I really going to allow him to be my Lord? I want to close. Actually, before we do that, listen, here's what I want you to understand. People ask, all right, what's the Christian life all about? What's the Christian life like? You know what the Christian life is? It's simple. All we're doing is trying to rightly align ourselves with the reality that Jesus is alive and he's Lord. All right, so guess what we do? We gather together. And what did we do before I got up and started um, talking to you? We sang some worship songs. We're talking to Jesus. God, you are worthy of our praise. You are king. You are Lord. You've defeated sin and death. We're worshiping the Lord. And then we open his word and we submit our lives to God's word. We, we do what he calls us to do and say, God, you are king, you are Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you. And then, get, then we gather together in community and we encourage each other. When we're down, we remind ourselves, listen, what happened at the cross is final. You're not defeated by sin and death, that Jesus is Lord. When we wander away, we call each other back and saying, listen, no, no, no. He is our good shepherd. He leads us to green pastures and still waters. He's alive and he's Lord and he's with you. And we pray for one another and we help one another. Listen, all we're doing is aligning ourselves to the reality that Jesus is alive. And I want to close this morning with a quote. And here's the reason I love this quote. I found this quote earlier this year. And I love the quote because of who made the quote. And if you were a history major in school or if you're a history buff, you'll know the name. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay, and uh, Napoleon, it was a, um, a war mastermind. He was a French imperialist, but he was brutal, and, and he was one of the greatest and most feared and brutal men in world history. Like, there's not 10 people who have ever experienced more power and fame and prestige than Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay, here's what Napoleon said about Jesus at the end of his life. He said this. He said, I know men. And I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. 
Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and gods of other religion. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded empires. But what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections? From the first day to the last, he is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. And he proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no other reason than those tremendous words, I am God. The Bible contains a complete series of acts in his, of and of historical men to explain time and eternity such as no other religion has to offer. If it is not the true religion, one is very excusable in being deceived, for everything in it is grand and worthy of God. The more I consider the gospel, the more I am assured that there is nothing there which is not beyond the march of events and above the human mind. Even the impious themselves have never dared to deny the sublimity of the gospel, which inspires them with a sort of compulsory veneration. What happiness that book procures for those who believe it. All right, so apparently I'm rolling with Constantine and Napoleon, right? Those are my boys in heaven. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I'm one of the most powerful men in world history, and Jesus is nothing like me. That the distance between me and Jesus is that of infinity. The distance between any other religion and Christianity is that of infinity. And the story of the gospel can only be supernatural because it is built on love. And there is a beauty and an explanation of history and the world and why we are where we are that nothing else can explain. He's saying it's real. Where are you? Does Jesus have you what decision are you going to make let me um, ask you to do this can you bow your heads and close your eyes um, here's what I know to be true in, in a room this size with this many people there are for sure many of you in here who you need to make the decision this morning to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you need to believe that what Jesus said about himself is true, that he is alive, that there is proof of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, I've done my best to make the argument, but I can't make that choice for you. And listen, I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle or, or to do anything overly dramatic, but that doesn't mean that the decision isn't just as real and just as important right now. There are some of you who do not believe that this is God's invitation to you right now to step into faith and to step into eternity as his son or daughter. Right, and there's others of you in this room that you've been living in this contradiction where you want Jesus as Savior, but you're unwilling to allow him to be Lord. And like, if you're there, can I just ask the question, what's it gonna take? How much more chaos, how much more dissonance, how much more knowing that you're missing out on what's best because you're not aligning yourself with the reality of Christ's resurrection. He is good, he is kind, 
He is loving all of this. He has proven over and over again, most profoundly on the cross when he died the death that we deserved. What more would he have to do to show you that he's worthy of following? Are you going to make the decision right now? Say, God, you have everything. You have how I spend my time. You have how I spend my money. You have what I set my eyes to and what I set my mind to and what I'm pursuing in life. When when is that decision going to be made? Heavenly Father, God, you're so good and you're so kind. Jesus, you are alive and you've changed the course of history and you've changed the course of our lives. And for that, there's no other words other than thank you. We don't deserve it. You are so much better and more worthy than we could even begin to comprehend. And your love is just amazing to us. So we just want to worship you right now. We want to proclaim that you are central to our lives, that you are our cornerstone. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.